Hello everyone and welcome to episode 6 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. Now if you've been following along, in the last couple of weeks we've looked at the opening chapters of John's Gospel and we've investigated themes like light and darkness, death and life, and John's idea that the creative wisdom of God is breaking through in the person of Jesus Christ. In our last episode, episode 5, we considered the sign of Jesus transforming water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And John tells us that this is the first sign which Jesus performs, and it's the one which his disciples see and decide, yes, that this guy is the Messiah, the Son of God, which they've been looking for. John tells us that through this sign, Jesus reveals his glory. In other words, Jesus sets himself up as a major player on the religious and political scene. In so doing, Jesus presents himself as a threat to the prevailing political, cultural, and religious order. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, his role, his job, if you like, is to overthrow these orders and replace them with a new kingdom. So in chapter 2, we see Jesus start to engage in rivalry with the political and religious structures of his day. At this point, it's only in seed form. But as we continue reading, we'll see this rivalry flower into a full-blown conflict. In this episode, we'll consider what is called the cleansing of the temple, as it is recorded in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 21. So let's read that section together. From verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the levy collectors sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the levy collectors, and turned over their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, a lot of people struggle with Jesus' actions in this passage because they appear quite violent. Jesus manufactures some type of makeshift whip so that he can violently drive out the people who are selling the sacrificial animals and collecting money within the temple. And for a lot of people who view Jesus as the incarnation of nonviolence, this incident seems somewhat out of character. In this podcast, though, I want to move over this anxiety about Jesus' actions to examine their place within John's gospel. In other words, let's begin by reading this narrative within the context of John's unfolding presentation of Jesus before we address how this incident fits with our conceptions of how Jesus should act. 
So first, let's start with a little bit of historical cultural background into what's going on in this passage. In Jesus's day, if you wanted to enter the temple, there was a temple tax. It was a kind of cover charge. And the money changers or the levy collectors would sit in the temple and collect this temple tax from everyone who entered into the temple. This tax was used to support the priests to do improvements and maintenance on the temple. So it did serve a purpose. However, it was a little bit exorbitant. Now, let's not forget that the Jerusalem temple is the only place where you can worship God, where you can sacrifice. So the religious establishment has a monopoly on the people. If you want to go worship God, you've got to do it at the temple. So they can charge whatever they like and people have got to pay it. There's no competition here. And that's what we're seeing in this time. And some people take exception to this idea of a temple tax. Some people protest against it in Jesus's day. And so Jesus may be entering into a debate about a temple tax in this incident. Some people disapproved of the temple tax because it felt it excluded certain people from taking part in worship. For example, these couple that we looked at in the last episode in Cana of Galilee, they had cheap wine at their wedding and even at that they couldn't afford enough to supply everyone. And they, in the end, they ran out. Could this couple afford an exorbitant temple tax to get into the temple? Or would such a tax exclude those people from being a part of Israel's worship? So these are the questions which people are debating in Jesus's day. Is it right to charge a temple tax? Is it right to exclude these people who can't afford to pay it? Now let's talk about the animals in the temple. Why are people selling animals? Well, Again, I mentioned that the Jewish authorities had a monopoly over religious worship. If you wanted to make a sacrifice, you had to do it at the temple. So people would come from far and wide to visit the temple to make their sacrifices. And it would be rather inconvenient for you to bring your sacrifice with you from home and travel miles on foot to the temple so that you can sacrifice your animal. What people would do is rather they would bring money and then at the temple, they could purchase their animal so that then they could sacrifice that. And that was a much more manageable way. So it was a convenient service which the temple offered. But of course, with convenience comes cost. And with the temple, there's a little bit of profiteering. Remember, I mentioned in previous podcasts that the temple of Jesus's day was managed by the religious family, the Sadducees. And there's a lot of intrigue, betrayal, behind the scenes things which happen so that they can secure the management of that temple. With the temple comes the money and the power and the authority to charge this money. So there is a little bit of profiteering going on. Think of the temple a bit like when you go to the movies, perhaps. You pay a fee to get in and watch your movie. But then, oh, you want to buy popcorn, you want to drink, you end up paying some exorbitant price for that drink and popcorn. If you had gone to the shop downstairs at the movies, you would have paid maybe a half or a third of that price. And for this reason, some movie theatres don't allow you to bring your own popcorn, don't allow you to bring your own lollies or soft drink in because they want you to buy their popcorn at their overinflated prices. 
so that they can have a monopoly on that and make money. And I think there's probably something similar going on here in the temple in Jesus's day. The cattle, the sheep, the doves are like a tiered sacrificial system. The richest of the rich could afford to buy a calf so that they could sacrifice that cow on the altar to God. Those who were not as well off maybe could afford to buy a sheep. It wasn't quite as expensive as a calf, but it could still use that and offer that on the altar to God. Those who were the poorest of the poor and couldn't afford either of these two options could purchase a pigeon. And that would be quite cheap, so you could offer an affordable sacrifice to God. So the pigeons were really for the poorest of the poor. So these oxen, sheep, pigeons were a way of trying to include everyone in Israel's worship. The richest of the rich could express their gratitude to God in an appropriate way, but also those who just couldn't afford that could also participate by sacrificing a pigeon which they purchased. So on one hand, these things are meant to be inclusive, but on the other hand, there's also barriers there, such as the temple tax, which exclude the poorest of the poor from participating in temple worship. Now, for some reason, Jesus takes exception to the money changes and the sellers of animals in the temple. We're not exactly sure why. Some scholars suggest that Jesus is protesting the temple tax. Others are arguing that Jesus takes exception to the sale of merchandise in the temple precinct. Still others claim that Jesus is symbolically play-acting the demise of the Jerusalem temple, which comes later in 70 AD, and with its demise, the Jewish sacrificial economy. At the end of the day, however, we just don't know exactly why Jesus is protesting or why he does this violent act at the Passover ritual. We do know he's probably engaging in some sort of ongoing debate in Jesus's day. And what we can see is that he starts to engage in rivalry with the Jewish establishment face to face in a public setting. You see, in the last episode, we saw that Jesus's glory was manifested, but it was manifested way out in the sticks, in the bush, in the wilderness, in Cana of Galilee in amongst a couple of excluded ragtags who no one really cared about. Now Jesus is coming and revealing his identity at the very center of the religious establishment, the very heartbeat of Israel's spirituality, the Jerusalem temple. And he doesn't do it quietly either. He doesn't take the leaders aside and air his grievance with them in a certain manner. But what he does is he makes a public loud, violent declaration of his disapproval of their practices. In verse 17, we read that Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So in this verse, John is giving us a bit of a frame. He's showing us what's important here, what he wants us to focus on. So for John, the emphasis of the passage is on Jesus' zeal for the temple. Now, what is it meant by zeal? Well, it's not a peaceful, gentle type idea. For example, in the Hebrew Bible, Phinehas, 
the priest is commended for his seal when he impales a man and a woman who engage in illicit sex together. You can find that in Numbers 25 verses 17 to 13. Another example, in 2 Samuel 21 verse 2, Saul seeks to kill the Gibeonites in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Jehu demonstrates his zeal for the Lord by killing the descendants of Ahab. Another example, in Isaiah 59 verse 17, the Lord puts on garments of vengeance, wrapping himself in zeal as a cloak. So just a few examples there to see how this word zeal is used in the Hebrew Bible. It's often expressed through acts of violence. So for John, Jesus incarnates this violent, holy seal for God's temple by driving out the animal sellers with a whip and overturning the tables. Now I've mentioned previously that John is quite unique in what he records in his gospel. But this incident is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, interestingly enough, the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are quite similar, but they're different to John. For example, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says this temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. But John's Gospel takes a slightly different because in there Jesus says take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or literally an emporium so for John Jesus's zeal for the Lord's house is triggered by his disapproval of the temple's economic structure in this structure we talked about the temple tax we talked about the tiered sacrificial system we talked that everyone had to pay no matter how poor they were, which would exclude certain people from worship. Notice also that the collection of the temple tax, the collection of money for sacrificial animals only flows in one direction. It flows from the people into the temple. Not unlike the movie theater who would charge me for my cover charge and then charge me for the drinks and the food I consume at the temple. The same sort of thing happens in the Jerusalem temple. The money flows from the people to the temple. But notice that Jesus reverses this flow when he overturns the tables and makes the money spill out of the temple coffers onto the ground. Now, imagine the scenario all the money from the temple has been spilt on the ground. All the people in charge of the commerce have been evicted, ejected from the temple. All that's left is the community that's watching on. And you can imagine as all this money is spilt out on the floor, you can imagine the poorest of the poor coming and scrounging the money, getting the money so that they can buy food for their family. They've spent their last couple of mites on the temple tax and on a pigeon to sacrifice to the Lord. And now, suddenly, all that money which has been hoarded by the rich, by the powerful, who have a monopoly over this religious game, all of a sudden, the money is flowing back in the other direction from the rich and powerful to the poor, the people who need it most. So in this act, we see something similar to what we've seen in the previous story about the wedding at Cana of Galilee. 
Just as Jesus inaugurated a new era of hope and prosperity and peace when he transforms water into wine for the poor people, so here is this abundance, this idea of prosperity as the money of the temple is poured out and given back to the poor. In this new era, the religious establishment will not exploit the poor people to make itself rich and powerful, but rather it will use its power and economic means to support and care for the poor. In other words, the money and care will flow in the other direction. Not surprisingly, the religious leaders of Jesus's day take exception to his actions, but to their credit, they do not physically attack Jesus, they don't arrest him, but rather they ask him for a sign for his actions. So you remember that in John's gospel, signs are very important. John gives us seven signs to indicate to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have true life. So in this way, the question of the religious leaders sets up John's gospel saying, who is Jesus and what sort of signs do we have? And that's what we're going to see as we continue throughout the gospel. In fact, in this very incident, we read in verse 23 that many believed in Jesus's name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus did perform signs at the temple. The leaders did get the signs that they were looking for to authenticate his role as the Messiah, as the Son of God, to show that he had authority to do these things. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll give you a sign, I'll show you. In response to the religious leader's question, Jesus simply says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now them is fighting words. First of all, the religious leaders think he's talking about the temple. So to talk about the destruction of the temple, again, is the rhetoric of insurrection. So you can see how the religious leaders would have taken a special offense to this thing which Jesus says. But John tells us that Jesus is actually referring to his own body. And with this imagery, Jesus is presenting himself as an alternative to the established Jewish religious system. And then the Jews reply because they can't believe what he's just said. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it here in three days. Now the temple in Jerusalem was a great monument. It took lots of time and money and resources to build it and maintain it. And this is one of the reasons why such a high temple tax had to be paid. But the temple which Jesus speaks of, again, the kingdom which Jesus brings, doesn't seem to be so hungry on everyone's resources. You see, the Jerusalem temple is this great monument, which while it looks pretty and impressive and serves the needs of the religious establishment, it's incredibly hungry and it's a massive drain on everyone's resources, even the ones who can afford it the least. But Jesus comes to bring a different kind of temple, a temple which pours out and distributes wealth rather than devouring it. Furthermore, when we read this passage within the idea of the Apostle Paul's image of the church community as a temple, Jesus may be downplaying the importance of an architectural monument 
to emphasize the value of the community itself. Like in this way, Jesus shifts the focus away from the temple, which had become a shrine and an idol in itself, to emphasize God's community as the dwelling place and home of the Holy Spirit. This represents a massive blow to the religious establishment because the religious regime rely upon this monopoly of the temple, the position that you have to come here, you have to sacrifice here. It's the very heart of their commerce and their religious power. And by presenting himself as an alternative to this temple, Jesus is undermining this monopoly. And in a sense, Jesus is opening the doors. He's letting the people free. He's setting them free from the oppression of these religious overlords who place all these demands, economic, spiritual, on the people. And Jesus is setting them free from those demands. Just a couple more comments before we wrap up. We're told in verse 24 that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. The word there is the same is belief, pistuo in the Greek. So while the disciples are believing in Jesus, while people are seeing the signs and they're believing in Jesus, Jesus is not believing in anyone else. What's going on there? Well, if we think about it, in John chapter 1, we saw people believe in Jesus. And what that meant was they observed him, they followed him, they imitated him. They adopted Jesus as their model so that they could become like him. So that Jesus, the unique son of God, serves as a model. So that when we imitate him, we too can become children of God. And so John appears to be here setting Jesus up as this unique son of God. In other words, he doesn't imitate anyone because he's unique. He can't imitate anyone because he couldn't be unique anymore. He's like this standalone model of God. He's complete. He's whole. And he doesn't need anyone to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. You see, here's the thing. The rest of humanity are stuck on the treadmill. They're chasing after all these possessions, they're chasing after new identity, they're looking for people to imitate so that they can become complete and whole. But Jesus knows this, Jesus knows that this is what other people are about, and Jesus knows that this is a vain pursuit. And for this reason, Jesus doesn't follow or imitate anyone else, but rather he serves as someone who we can imitate. Thank you for joining me. I hope you've found this podcast helpful and enjoyable. Join me again next time when we continue our study and look at John chapter 3. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.